Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me, Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world, it can often feel that the struggles and humanity of musicians is lost and restricted. Having both suffered in silence with mental, physical and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have. No topic will be out of bounds as we are committed to raising awareness for all varieties of struggle. So join me, Hattie and guests as we attempt to bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about. producer big title and legend and legend and dog mum and general lovely dressmaker oh thank you hi hi how are you doing i'm feeling very cool in my fancy new dress yeah it looks so nice thanks guys if you if you want an audio description it is a beautiful (laughs) dress petrol green petrol green sage green no bottle green between a petrol and a bottle green i'd say green Oversized flowy tea dress, which is we said we'd pay two hundred pounds for it. It's very if you know the brand Toast, not, not sponsored. sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> it is very similar to Toast. Thank you. I would say there are other beautiful clothing companies available, but there aren't that many. I can't think of any of them. Toast is so nice. But yeah, welcome. We're so excited to welcome you into the podcast family. Um, we've been working together for a few months, getting things started, but this is like the first time we've probably sat down together and recorded, recorded which is just... Had all the cables out. <laughs> and your beautiful husband has been really helpful. And... Yeah. He's a seasoned professional. He is. Uh, as I'm sure we're going to get into... Later in the episode, um, I am fairly new, pretty new to sound engineering and uh, setting up cables. Usually, uh, my experience of it is having other people do it for me, and then I have to make sure I play perfectly. <laughs> do you think that it was his interest and my expertise that got you into it? Oh, we're going straight here, are we? I'm just interested. <laughs> right? No, we're going to introduce a proper bit. Okay. That's a really good question, actually. I think that probably the short answer is yes. But also because uh, when I was really investigating jobs that I found exciting, the main person I spoke to who inspired me was a connection I, I knew through Dan. Oh. Yeah. So so I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the people that Dan is connected to. Yeah. Um, uh, which I think is I think it's a very normal thing. That's how I feel with with you. Mm. So I wouldn't know you if I didn't know Rebecca. Mm. That's mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And I only know you because you overshare on Instagram. Instagram, yeah. And everyone's like, mate, you need to talk to this person. <laughs> she is I'm not good. <laughs> I think we should start with, I mean, it sounds obvious, but why we were looking for an audio editor, mm. why we're expanding. Mm. Yeah. It, well, firstly, because it's exciting and we love talking to more cool people. Mm-hmm. But also, if you listen to our episodes, I can't remember how many episodes now we've had to record a little spiel at the beginning being like, look guys, we know the audio quality is not good. And that is our fault. It was the one I did yesterday, probably the funniest, just being like, and here we are again. 
<laughs> with noises. <laughs> and there are so many different ones. And, and also, a game of bingo. we also forgot to say that we hate editing. So we palmed it off to Katie. I think when you start a podcast, it's just expected that you're going to do everything, I think. Especially mm-hmm. when you're in the beginning stages. And I did kind of enjoy it for a few episodes because it was new. But I think very quickly it felt like I want this to be a more pleasurable experience for the listener. And you and were, me, you were yeah. like, no more of this. Yeah. So it's it's a really amazing thing to be able to find someone like you who like is into it or like oh getting into it. Um, well, that's the thing I think super admirable about um, the way you started. Because you're just like, right, that's it. I'm doing it. And that's the thing I think is most important is if you have an idea and you want to put it out in the world. But what people don't realise is that editing your own voice really sucks. (laughs) As you're going to find out. Yeah. Um, Maybe we probably won't do too many of these. I I definitely prefer being behind the scenes. Uh, It's actually really fun and I love being able to craft sound without being on stage. Mm. (laughs) I thought you were just going to say cry. We love crying. I we love, love being crying. able to cry and no one Not hearing on it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever cried on stage. I've almost oh. fallen asleep on stage, but it wasn't performing, it was page turning. I've cried on stage um, loads of times. Mm, oh God. And in exams. We'll get into mm. that. We'll get into that. Different episodes. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of your past life, I don't know... It's not really how... Your current life as your well. Your current life as well, You're the same yeah. person as you always Give us a, an introduction to the Katie... Yeah, the, the Katie, the Katie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, ah, oh, where to start? I am a flute player, and I really, really wanted to be an orchestral musician. I decided this when I was like fourteen, and my dad took me to the BBC Proms, and we prommed it, and we stood almost at the very front of the arena. I say we're really lucky because it was a Berlin Philharmonic. So I have no idea. We must have got there early or like maybe, I don't know why more people weren't there, but we were really near the front. Um, and people get very passionate about being near the front of the arena at the BBC Prom. So yeah, it was really cool. Nailed it. And they were, the Berlin Philharmonic were playing with Rattle. They were playing um, Bruckner 7, which I think is really good. But I also have this memory. So this is why I think it's good. And I remember that wall of sound because like Bruckner is kind of like a, cathedral in terms of his writing it's like mega i just thought i need to be in that i need to be at the center of that sound yeah and at at that time i was uh learning how to play the piano and having lessons with that but i'd given up the flute years ago wow yeah i wasn't playing the flute at the time and piano was actually a very private thing for me anyway so i was performing but maybe to like choir and very musically involved in school but not with the flute i picked up the flute again played a bunch and then went and asked our local flute teacher if she would teach me um, and kind of went from there. I ended up getting into the youth orchestra and uh, we had an incredibly inspiring conductor, Peter Curry. He was wonderful. And I had these amazing friends. And yeah, from there I was just decided I really want to play in an orchestra. I don't know if you guys were in a county ensemble, but I just feel like they're very special places. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm biased. Becca, were you in? I was first in Hampshire County Youth Wind Band. Mm. 
So I don't know why that's funny. It was kind of inspiring, but a lot of sea shanties and like Malcolm Arnold. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. just have so, this vision of you playing with the thatched roofs all around you. Yeah, I was like fourth trumpet in that. Uh, and then I very quickly moved on to the main orchestra, which is pretty exciting. But yeah, it was like definitely the reason why I got into music was being around mm. those youth orchestra people. You were in Hertfordshire? Her- Herefordshire. Sorry, you sorry. You dare get it wrong. I got it wrong. Everyone gets it wrong, it's fine. Yeah, yeah actually it's funny, I don't think my early orchestral experiences were very positive mm. because I had a, a set of very traumatising conductors and, mm. you know, had some instances of being like singled out in the orchestra and and feeling very like weird about it. And it wasn't until I got to Cheatham's in college where I had like positive orchestra experiences actually, which is interesting. I can imagine why it would be a, a positive experience, but it matters so much who's leading it. Mm. Like, as you say, like you're remembering this conductor as being such like a positive inspiration. He was so inspiring. He always had a story yeah. to tell us about the piece. Oh. Um, and told us about its history. Got so excited That's about so different members of the orchestra and how they were playing. Like, I remember doing Romeo and Juliet. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. There was this one moment he was just like, the horns, the horns are the most amazing. Everyone listen to the horns at this point, you know, and uh, just he really like had real love real love and passion for so the sound of the orchestra and how it should has such a clear vision that's um, who should be teaching kids mm-hmm. like, I just I felt so angry like looking back that I was so fearful of people who really didn't deserve to have that kind of control or like power because mm. um, it is a very powerful position to be yeah, in yeah isn't it with great power comes great responsibility you still have <laughs> yeah. I mean I was in an orchestra at my school before that and that was the antithesis it was like this really, really shouty yeah. music director that was mm. like trying to assert control over yeah. this so following yeah. on from youth orchestra mm. where did you go next uh, so I, I think because I came to everything just a little bit too late, mm. that's, I think that's kind of <laughs> the theme, like the theme of my, of my experience so far is because I, I came to the flute and really taking it seriously, like age 15. Yeah. And I'd caught up really quickly and my teacher was like, great, like, let's take your grade seven then let's take your grade eight. Like I was like, I really was passionate and we can talk about this as well, but I was passionate about taking exams. So I was like, right, this is going to tell me I'm good enough. So when I got into sick form, I then realised that junior departments existed. Oh, I've heard that so many times from people. Yeah. And I, I do think, because I have so many friends who had the most amazing time at a junior mm-hmm. department, and I did live close enough that it would be possible. I, yeah, so I just missed that. Oh, that's so um, shit. And yeah. then, because of that, I didn't really feel like I was good enough to apply for music college. But also I've always been a very academic person and it seemed very important to me to go to university and to follow my academic self and that because it felt like an uncertainty that I would ever be good enough to play in an orchestra Mm. because I had come to it so late, I thought, okay, it's really important that I go to university. This is the advice everyone's telling me. I should go to a university where there's a really good flute teacher. So I was really uh, focused on that. I made sure I had a teacher lined up. I um, studied with a teacher at the Royal Northern and um, 
they were actually very nice to me, the whole Northern flute department. They would let me kind of sneak into the back of their classes and Aww. just watch. <laughs> yeah, so I, I went to the University of Manchester so that I was close to the Royal Northern. And again, I didn't know that the the uh, joint course existed until after I got there. Oh, so it was always... <laughs> that was the other thing in my head, I was like... Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. So... I met some amazing people at Manchester. My whole time there, I was thinking, right, I'm going to apply for music college for my postgrad. Mm. And then if I get into music college, I will be good enough to play in an orchestra. Mm. That was my mentality, my whole mentality. And so I, I worked my butt off and I auditioned for the college and the academy just because the amount of time I, I had, it, I only had enough time to prepare like one set of repertoire and I could play the same thing for both places. And I thought I'm never going to get into the academy, but college is my dream. Somehow I got into both, <laughs> which was like an insane moment. For, like, I remember receiving like the phone calls and just and the letters and just like crying that I had this option. Yeah. And I, my teacher advised me to go to the academy because I she got a phone call from the person I ended up studying with, uh, saying that he really enjoyed my playing and and so she thought I should study with him and it was actually a really great pairing. I also felt very personally connected to the academy because my nan and my grandpa went there. Oh, which I feel is worth mentioning. Definitely. Um, my my grandpa was a uh, professional violinist, and my nan uh, was an actress or drama teacher. That's so lovely. Yeah, so they met there, so I was like, oh, I need to go. And that's just kind of funny because my now husband and I met at the academy. So it's a very long winded way around, but. I really felt like I needed to go to the academy. This is where we get to the, the tricky stuff. Oh, welcome. Yeah. The gates are wide open, Thanks, baby. Guys. <laughs> yeah. I definitely went in massively naive. I was not prepared for the academy. Partly because I'd spent three years studying for an academic degree. Doing as much playing as I physically could. But I was not playing with the and practicing with the intention of that being my whole day and my Mm. whole purpose to learn the most as I could of how to play my instrument Mm. but my naivety came from the fact that I thought if I get into the academy I'm gonna graduate from the academy with all of the skills I need to get an orchestra job like I'm definitely gonna win an orchestra job and when you're there as well they tell you or whether it's purposeful that this is the message that's sent to you or not at least within the flute department that your whole worth like relies in winning that orchestral job and if you don't do that after you've graduated you have failed it's not that what you learn maybe wasn't right for you or that you have more learning to do or and so many endless reasons why you might not win a job as soon as you graduate or whilst you're studying but I feel like that is so much of what the the message that is sent to us um did you guys have the same experience at college like the orchestra is kind of the epitome of your purpose definitely think that's a brass thing a bit more yeah but i i as well it was with strings it was either yeah orchestra job you're going to be in a great quartet or you know the only other thing open to you is teaching i guess and you say, I guess, with teaching, because I, I do think that yeah. there's a lot of negativity as well. Exactly. Towards young musicians 
with that vocation. Yeah, I think, oh, oh, you're, oh, you're, a, a, you're teacher. a teacher. Oh, that means that you didn't win that orchestral job or you're not busy enough. Yeah. And actually, no, it might be that you just love being with young people and you're very passionate about mm. sharing your instrument and your skills and your love for music with them. It doesn't, yeah, it's so detached from actually the reality of what it is to be a young musician living, especially living in London, uh, but a young musician in this country today. Mm. Yeah, I get that when I see my old teachers now at gigs or when I go to academy and they're like, oh, what are you up to now? And I'm like, oh, like I'm doing a lot of teaching and they go, oh, mm. and I'm like, mm, can you be happy about that? Please? <laughs> <laughs> this is the moment where you say how good. <laughs> yeah, this is like, oh, that's great. Who are you working for? So, but yeah, in brass, it's very much all of the exams you have orchestral excerpt exams. I mean, it's the same for so many instruments and departments that you're essentially funneled into orchestral playing, whether that's through projects or exams or encouraged to do orchestral auditions or whatever. And then, yeah, it's either kind of that, or if you're gonna be a soloist, you kind of need to already come to music college with that intention. Otherwise, I mean, I remember having lessons in Sweden when I was at school and um, people were really like, oh, Rebecca could be a soloist. And I went to this teacher and he was like, no, you're far too old to be thinking about being a soloist. Wait, sorry, lessons in Sweden? Yeah. That's Siri. <laughs> lessons in Sweden? <laughs> Sweden and Siri are the same word. Would you like me to find you some lessons in Sweden? <laughs> really amazing you had lessons in Sweden yes but then they were awful like they were very oh. traumatizing oh no and Wait, um, so this is when you were at Wells yeah maybe like 16 he was not enthusiastic about teaching me I and like, yeah. yeah every lesson was like you're not good enough like you're, yeah. you're too old to be thinking about a soloist so what what's the point what are yeah. you doing here but yeah so music college especially as a brass player it's like well you either come as a soloist or you do something else mm. um yeah. I think it's worth mentioning that during the middle of my time at the academy, I was there for two years, so this is in the summer between my first and second year, I had a very kind of big traumatic family uh, event happen. And looking back on it, so I was going to say I didn't handle it very well. I don't mean handle the emotional side of like that event. I think I mean, I didn't handle the situation with my studying and how it impacted my studying very well. But I also wasn't set up to succeed at that. I wasn't put in an environment at the academy where I felt like I could fail in any way. Mm -hmm. And although I had the loveliest teachers, I did have really kind teachers who I felt comfortable with, but I didn't feel comfortable enough that I could ever show that I was either struggling with something in my playing, let alone struggling with something in my personal life. And so I remember coming back in September, which was even like, everything was up in the air. I didn't know whether I was gonna get funding or afford it or be able to live in London. I, I genuinely, I was striving to come back desperately but I didn't even know I was going to get to be able to do it until I came back in September and it was I finally sorted it out and uh, I remember coming back and thinking oh my gosh I have so much to hide now mm. um, and I probably looking back on it I probably should have taken a year out but I felt like I couldn't mm. 
I felt like I had to put on a brave face, show that I was completely fine. There was nothing going on, nothing to see here. I'm still a really strong flute player and you should put me in all the projects mm. and I'm absolutely fine. I'm still very grateful, super grateful that I did stay that year because the people that I met, I met my husband, <laughs> I started my wind quintet and I'm sure I'll mention them again because they are four of my favorite people in the whole world. But those four people made the next five years of my life the, the best even though there was so much hard stuff going on. Mm -hmm. So I'm really grateful I did have that last year, but I graduated in such a difficult, like emotional place, personal place. I didn't get the training that I needed, although I had the kindest, loveliest teachers. I really needed a single teacher every week that was gonna drag me up into the technical understanding I needed. And instead I got to the academy as a student expected to know how to play the flute and the masters it's almost like no one told me that you need to be at this level where you can play everything you know all the excerpts you're just there to make contacts and impress mm. people that's what it felt like and I only realized this in retrospect because years later I found a teacher who gave me all of the technical foundations that I needed and I suddenly realized that's why I'm not getting the jobs that I want and he's also the person that said you have so much emotional baggage connected to the flute mm. that if you don't unpick that, you're never going to be able to play. And actually, more importantly, you're never going to be able to practice your full potential mm -hmm. because practicing meant something very, very different for me before I went to study with him than it did after I started studying with him. Mm. I don't know what you guys think, but I feel like most music college professors are set up to teach students that don't exist. <laughs> like if they're, they're set up to teach people that have no problems that can already play their instrument to the technical capacity that is required to win a job particularly in masters like you say and yeah that have no physical ailments no mental ailments like just this blank slate mm. of a student mm. yeah I think that's so true I mean that's just the string department all over <laughs> Because it's all about who the teacher is, which teachers accepted you. Mm -hmm. Because you bring glory to their name. Mm -hmm. And if you don't live up to that, then they're like, this isn't my fault, this is your mm -hmm. fault. You know, I'm a great teacher. Look at all my students, look how great they are. Why aren't you living up to them, sort of thing. Yeah. That was my experience with, with my first teacher. Mm. Who she would always have the best cellist in college. So I was like... It felt like a real privilege that I was among her students. And you had to keep that I had to position. try and keep that, but it was so obvious that I didn't live up to them. Yeah, but I was sort of there like, yeah, but you're meant to help me. Get mm. up there. And she was... <laughs> it was sort of like, well, they can do it, so why can't you? Mm -hmm. So I think you're dead right. I wonder, Katie, whether... Because doing a two-year postgrad after a three-year academic course, did you feel like... Well, you already said that you felt like you had catching up to do with technical stuff, but did it feel like a short time for you to be studying at the academy? Not short enough. I, <laughs> I think I was very ready to leave that building. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't. <laughs> I didn't actually because um, I ended up going back for the next two years because my, my wind quintet got the learning fellowship and we did this incredible partnership with Wigmore Hall and that was fantastic. But it meant that 
we had a space to rehearse. Mm. That was at the academy. So I was, I kept going back for two years. I, 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 I felt like I was there for four, but I was under pressure for a lot of pressure for two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I arrived, totally unprepared, uh, I suddenly realized within the first month that I needed to learn how to play scales in thirds, fourths, fifths, sixths, sevenths. And I'd never done that in my life. And I suddenly had to do them every, every single key. I had to play all of these excerpts perfectly, ideally memorized. And I'd never even played those excerpt, excerpts mm. before in my life. I knew the pieces of music because I loved the music, but I'd never played them as excerpts. And I, ne- I didn't really have that understanding of, oh, well, a premedy is a very important excerpt. You have to make sure that you play it in one breath. And then they're, oh, wait, do you have to play it in one breath? Well, some people will, don't. <laughs> will, will you not get the job if you don't play it in one breath? And, oh my God, don't get me started. But I can't believe the like flute subculture. I mean, you've been like... blown away by like brass culture and I don't understand stuff to do with strings, let alone. Yeah. It's like Actually, a whole nother world. This is really awesome, guys. We are a... Diverse. Yeah, we are many different sections of the orchestra. Yeah. So is, we have our different wealths of knowledge. Our um, knowledge. <laughs> wealths no, of trauma. I think if you imagine a child being given, I say a child because I really did feel mm. like a small child, completely overwhelmed by the world, being given textbooks that are double or three times the length of their height, right? Mm. So you imagine a little child and the books go right up to the ceiling and they couldn't only just about hold them and you somehow have to memorise everything you're holding. And like read it and then memorise it yeah. and live it. Yeah, it was really a complete whirlwind I really felt like I was constantly chasing my tail and then at the same time I had some really awesome moments where like I came second in a big competition I got put in the opera orchestra uh, at the academy which was a big big deal for me that year my first year because I hadn't been put in orchestra before that um, which is like a whole other thing can we please talk about the fact maybe they didn't do this when you were there but they would put the names of who was in the projects up on a notice board and that's the only place that you could get that information. So it was public. I know that this is how it used to have to be done pre-internet computers emails. When I really thought about it about a week ago, um, I realised this is a very traumatising experience because if you were in a department of 30 flute players and there are only four flute players that are ever picked for orchestra and you kind of know who those people are going to be. This might not be the same anymore. It's the same. Mm. Um, I know that the department has completely changed, so it, it might be different. But when I was there, there were a very few selection of people that would generally be put in orchestra. I don't like the way I sound when I talk about this. I feel like I'm, yeah. I turn into this kind of green, jealous monster. But we're all there to get experience and to learn and it feels like such an honour to play an orchestra and you're really made to feel like if you get into the orchestra projects, you've made it, like you're, you're, you know, really, you're doing well. Mm. Where I, I actually think it should be that, no, I'm paying to be educated, I should, we should all get a chance to be an orchestra. But you go to these notice boards and you search down the length of the corridor for your name and your name is not there, not once. And I remember being in my very last term at the academy and I was so sure that my audition had gone well and that it's my last term 
I'm going to get put in an orchestra project because I'm leaving, right? And I haven't like had that opportunity. And I remember going down the corridor, searching for my name and like tears welling up in my eyes because I was getting to the end of the notice board and I knew that it wasn't there and it probably wasn't going to be. I remember I found my name in Flute Ensemble, which um, at the time was like code for you failed. Um, <laughs> which is really mean because Flute Ensemble was really fun and we have a good time. But it's not the same thing. It's not the same. <laughs> like, I start using Flute Ensemble as like a code word for failure. <laughs> Uh, really sorry to all of the wonderful teachers who ran Flute Ensemble. But yeah, so I, I saw that my name was in you know, put in Flute Ensemble and I was basically on the verge of tears and bearing in mind that everybody is so excited to see who's been put in projects, the corridor is rammed to the point you can't move. I was surrounded by tens of people, I was on the edge of tears and I couldn't possibly be seen crying because that's embarrassing and everyone would know that your name wasn't there. And I remember running to the toilets, which were actually very thankfully close by, locking myself in a, a toilet booth and just bawling my eyes out and trying really hard not to be heard because I was sobbing so hard, like I really thought. I was really having to hold it back because I was so mm. intensely distraught that my last term at the academy I had been deemed not good enough mm -hmm. to play in orchestra. So just, is that really necessary? Not putting the names up on the board. Putting the names up on, say public humiliation, at least for mm. the flute department, because I think, you know, in a different department, maybe in the strings department, you know, maybe you don't want to be sat at the back of the seconds, but you've been put there anyway and it's like a waste of your time to go to the rehearsals. Hattie's nodding, just have to... To say that different but words. in the in the flute department it is the cream of the crop so it really is public humiliation if you don't find your name there mm. it's the same really, in brass it is yeah mm. I, there are so many situations like that when i look back now and i'm so many years away from this institution now that i realize that created a incredibly traumatic toxic experience for me mm. was that really necessary mm. did that help my education in any way no I don't know if they have it at college do you audition for the projects because at Guildhall we didn't audition we did one audition at the start of every academic year I think it's every term. and then they mark you a plus to d or whatever and if you got an a plus you were principal and if you got anything else it, I don't know what you were um I remember having a conversation with one of the staff members in the brass department who was considering putting a list up of like ranking everybody from the auditions on the notice board alongside the ensemble lists. What the actual hell? I don't think it happened. Is this because they had that ranking anyway privately? Probably. Yeah, it was their ranking. Yeah, because that was in the flute department. Uh, we were ranked by the head of department. Yeah, but they and wanted then... to get up. They so we it up, but it was basically mm. put up because it was if you are in orchestra, yeah. you are in the top four. If you're not in orchestra, you're somewhere lower down the list. If you're not in anything, you're at the bottom of the list. You're in flute ensemble. Though, no, 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 no. If you're not in anything, you're at the very bottom of the list because there are more flute players and there are positions to do it and everything and everything. Oh my god! Can I just? Oh, this just mm. makes me so angry. Mm -hmm. It reminds me as well. At college, they had a thing for a while, which I think they stopped in like maybe my third year, where if you had a scholarship and you were in a project, in the programme, they put an asterisk by your name. So, like, everyone that didn't have an asterisk by their name, you'd, they'd, like, judge them. Like, oh, they're not very good, then are they? Because they don't have a scholarship. That's so weird. 
yeah, especially when you know that getting into the orchestra is like a bit of a prestigious thing and then they still add another level of like, oh, and also these people have scholarships. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing about music college, isn't it? That when we get there, we usually arrive, and I'm talking about this in the context of someone who didn't go to a, a music school beforehand. You arrive having been someone who is probably one of the most musical people in your school or in your area, and you've often been the only person or one of the very few people performing at that level. And then you get to music college and it's a very good place to be reminded that you are a small fish in a big pond. Yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a really good lesson for life <laughs> and for the real world. But I think you should be made to thrive while you're yeah. there. Not yeah. made to. I think you should be given the opportunity to thrive. You will thrive. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than, hey guys, you are a tiny fish in a big pond. And if you don't tick all these boxes and if you if you're not one of these very few people given these very special opportunities you're nothing mm. you're not going to succeed you're not going to be able to swim i definitely still felt that coming from a music school as well mm. that even though everybody you know was pretty good at music school uh and i went to music college with quite a few people or i, I got there and there were lots of people i already knew it was still this very like, you're on your own now. Mm. Like we're we're in a clique, but like you're on your own. Mm. Small thing. I think that's why it can be so easy, like with something personal, to feel like why would I bother sharing this with anyone? Because no one's thinking about me anyway. I don't yeah. have to be there. I don't have to. I mean, at least in in my undergrad, it felt like no one's gonna miss me if I don't show up. Maybe it was different in the flutes, but like I felt like one of so many that it was just kind of like, I could very easily get by without anyone picking up on it. Mm. So that was even more of a reason for me not to make it a, a big deal or mm. find help. And that's really interesting when I compare it to the training I've been given to work as a one-on-one -on -one visiting music teacher in a school environment, because you have that one-on-one -on -one time with a child in a way that they might not have anywhere else in their life. And because of that, you're probably going to notice changes mm. more than a teacher who cares just as much but has 30 kids in the room. Mm. And I have been a person that children have confided in. I take that responsibility very seriously. And you then have this whole set of processes that you need to make sure that you write down exactly what happened, tell them that you can't keep it a secret, but you're worried about them. So you're going to share it with someone um, that can help them. Like it's a whole very well thought out and constantly, constantly developing and changing system of making sure that you're looking after every child. I just don't think that that same thought and process is necessarily put into place. Or if it is, I don't think that instrumental teachers at music colleges are given either the training or have the time or I don't even know the reason why but I just don't feel like they're given the same safeguarding yeah well they're not given any well I was gonna say I wonder whether it's like just the technical thing of because everything everybody's over 18 you should be an adult and you should be able to look after yourself but in reality we know that's not the case and also you're made to feel like a child at music college and you're still in this teacher-student relationship mm -hmm. but I think I think people battle this throughout 
their careers no matter what industry they're in it, it really depends on who your boss is what company you're working for as to whether you think you can share that you're having a hard time mm-hmm. and this is why I really love what you guys are doing and where I'm so passionate about you. this podcast yeah you're doing it too you're part of the fam that's true you wouldn't want but this is why I wanted to be part of the family oh. because I think it's so important that we're talking about these things so that young musicians can realize that they're not alone and that yeah. there are options but also more people need to talk about the fact that we're not always okay yeah <laughs> i could get into a whole spiel about <sighs> capitalism <laughs> <laughs> but i won't um but i do think we need to be able to be put in a position where we can say i am having a really tough time i can't do my job today mm-hmm. and that's okay because we're not productive for eight hours a day if you're being paid for a full-time job. Or if you're a freelancer, just because I'm having a tough time today doesn't mean I'm gonna not going to play incredibly in a week's time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we don't have that across the board. Mm. So I, I think it's really important that and we're talking about these things. Thank you. Yeah, it means so much to us that we've found someone or you reached out to us that, like... And we so clearly have the same passion because mm-hmm. I think it's it would have been difficult to bring someone on who maybe just wanted to edit the audio, you know, like. And there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly, I mean, that, that actually is very standard in the industry. Yeah, for sure. In the podcast industry, for the audio editor to really just be told what they need to cut yeah. and, and make it sound good, and I think that's also how we've ended up coming to me having the role of producer um, and I think ding, we're still ding, ding, bingo. <laughs> we're still figuring out what that means and exactly what it looks like and I'm sure it will change with how the podcast grows and what is needed and Becca and Hassie have so much on their plates and they're incredible at juggling everything and I feel very lucky that I get to share that with them because we can all between the three of us we can all get everything done and that would be sound nice. really good ideally that's the idea so Although it's very normal in the podcast industry to have a person who is not necessarily in that field. I mean, podcasts get super niche, right? No, (laughs) classical music trauma. (laughs) (laughs) But they do. And so you're not always going to be able to find someone that has the skills to edit and uh, understand recording techniques and also know about horses. I say that because um, I know someone who's doing an equestrian podcast, but you're not necessarily going to put those people together, right? Yeah. So I also got very lucky that you guys were looking for someone at the same time that I was building my skills to do this work. And I think that brings us around to... That was my question. That was my question. Oh my God. Go oh, you, you can just answer Becca, the question. what's your question? I was going to ask about the... About the current life of Katie. The current affairs. How did I go from crying in the Royal Academy of Music bathroom? Which everyone does, by the way, after. I've done that. I didn't even go there. No. (laughs) I actually did. Oh my God. I'm not surprised. It encourages that emotion, I would say. It's a disgusting place, that loo. (laughs) I've left my phone in there so many times. Oh no. Anyway, sorry. They need me. The amount of people that eavesdrop into conversations in that toilet. Anyway, (laughs) how did I go from there? to hear. Let me tell you. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about a little thing called COVID. Wait, what's that? Wait, what? I don't know. 
Is what it she's on about? Co yeah. parenting? Co if we go go back to twenty nineteen, no one would have any idea what we're talking about. That's true. If you're listening to this in twenty nineteen, yeah. What up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we if we go back to the pandemic, the very first lockdown, I was working basically seven days a week. Uh, I was freelancing as a performing musician, playing in orchestras, weddings, events. I was running two chamber ensembles. That was one hat. I had another hat. I was also working as a workshop musician, as a supporting musician with people of all ages, um, right from babies all the way up to people in care homes um, and working with people living with dementia. And then I was also teaching privately one-on-one flute. And then I was practicing my butt off for any audition that was coming up next. And the pandemic hit and everything except for my teaching work was canceled. And I was teaching all day, every day because teaching online sucks. I split my teaching into five days with breaks in between. And yeah, it was an incredible moment for me to go, do I want to be doing this? Sounds kind of inevitable actually. (laughs) Yeah. And I have to say that teaching online made me feel like I never want to teach again. (laughs) I got that as well. I got that a hundred times over. With your one student. Do you want to calm down? <laughs> no, I do not. I'm furious. I had one student. That was enough. And this is the thing as well. It's like, I really like all of my students. Yeah. I think they're really awesome humans. It's not about their it's humanity. Not, it's not about them. It's about the fact yeah. that even my most experienced flute players sounded terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I got to question, do I want to teach full time? Mm. Do I want to perform? Do I really want to be practicing this much? The answer is never. (laughs) I think questioning whether what you have spent your, what feels like your entire life working towards, questioning, do I want to have this freelance portfolio career in order to finally win a job in an orchestra? That's what it was for me anyway, because I know a lot of people want to have that freelance portfolio career for what it is for itself. For me, it was a means to an end of being able to get a job in an orchestra. I realized it was not worth sacrificing my day-to-day happiness in order to strive for this potentially never gonna happen goal. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that, it was really, really, really hard. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's a grief, isn't it? Like, yeah. yeah. What, what am I gonna do? Who am I? Yeah. Also? Am I a person without my flute? And without this goal that even when you were at university, you were working towards. It's Mm. that sunk cost. Your your favourite. Sunk cost fallacy again. Mm. Of like, if I've put all this energy into something and then I decide I don't want it, it's enough to know that you've put that energy into it to keep you going, to keep you on that road, just because the thought of letting that go is so painful because of the amount of hours mm. and money and and what other people say. And what other people say. Oh, what a shame! Isn't you're it really gonna shame? throw it away? All that hard work. <laughs> I actually kept kept it very private for a long time. Good for you. And it's yeah. a, it feels like a very big deal in some ways to be talking about it here. 
because it's not something that I have necessarily shared with my students, mm. who if they're listening, you rock for listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well done. Uh, yeah. You can um, be our friends. But why should, their lessons are not about me, it's about them. Like, yeah. I don't need to share that, I am there to teach them. And I'm still 100% invested in that. But to actually then, outside of their lessons, like my whole time I'm thinking, okay, I'm just about getting by by making sure I still teach. And I'm, I'm so lucky to have that work because it has meant that I can spend time exploring what I want to do. But I genuinely thought I want nothing to do with music. I want, I'm going to go and be a civil servant. I'm going to go and... I don't even know what Your mind goes everywhere, doesn't it, though? Everywhere but yeah. music. Uh, yeah, kind of everywhere, but also nowhere. Yeah. You're like, okay, I could do... Uh, uh, oh, oh, no. I even <laughs> thought I was going to be a priest at one point. Hattie. Literally, like, the a worst. year and a half ago. Can you imagine? That's no. amazing. Me with the dog collar sat here right now. Yeah. I realised if I spoke to someone who was passionate about their job, I then wanted to do their job. Yes! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> I had that when I was waitressing. I was like, oh my God, this could be me. Yeah. <laughs> no. I then realised after a lot of soul searching and talking to people who love their job, but it's very boring to me, that I needed to do something in music. Mm-hmm. What I am saying now and what we're about to talk about, this was a process that took the full like year and a half, two years of from the beginning of the pandemic to now, or how long ago it was, I don't even know what, how long ago was it since the pandemic had started? A lifetime. Two and a half lifetime. years. I then realized not only do I need it to be in music, but I would like to be involved with the making and the, shaping of sound and I think going back to that experience of standing in front of the Berlin Philharmonic and that wall of sound hitting me it was that sound of the orchestra that I loved and when I was in youth orchestra I would write program notes for my mum who isn't super into classical music I mean she is for me but she I don't think she would listen to it outside of my passion for it. I would write program notes for her that weren't about the history of the piece or the composer. They were narrations of what I imagined would be happening if they were a film score. I love that. I love it more than anything. <laughs> so from those program notes and realizing that I loved the orchestra and I love that sound, I put two and two together and I thought, you know what? having a job in music for picture would be incredible. Mm. And I started to ask people who I knew or who I thought might know other people that worked in the industry, what is it that you do? Mm. Uh, I spoke to uh, a music editor shortly after asking around and they were so inspiring. They gave me like three hours of their time, which I don't think they really had. Um, That's amazing. And told me everything that they do um, inside out. And they passed on the details of another person I could talk to. And from there, it just ended up spinning. Uh, and alongside this, I had my husband's aunt supporting me. She is an incredible person. She is careers coaching me, even still now. Like, I say even. Like, it's actually been a really long time that she's been supporting me through this process. She encouraged me to ask people when I'm talking to them about their jobs, if they know anyone else that I should speak to, which wow. feels 
really nerve-wracking yeah you're like, i'm asking for so much no you're not you're just asking for an email and they don't have to give it to you like yeah. i've asked people and they're like no i can't think of anybody I'm like yeah. oh, okay that's fine no problem like, it was really nice to meet you um but i have been very proactive but also very very lucky that the people i've spoken to have been generous with their time and willing to share with me their knowledge and what they think i need to do in order to get to uh, a role in music for picture and earlier this year I wrote the music and music edited for a short film called Duet. Which... I didn't know that. Oh sorry I forgot to tell you. <laughs> wow. Um, yes, directed by Floris Driebergen. That week of working with Floris and the whole duet team was probably one of the most exciting work weeks of my life. I didn't realise that I could get so excited about sound and about how emotional music can make you feel and how you can manipulate it to completely change a scene mm. it really was confirmation for me that i'm going down the right path oh that's incredible but it turns out if you want to work in this field you also need to know a lot about audio engineering <laughs> here we are yeah but also if you hadn't if you didn't know the intro to our podcast true was composed by you yes do you think that makes you more desirable as an editor as well if you can say you have that skill i've been given the advice that i should definitely practice writing for picture mm. as a way of understanding what to hit like what moments in the scene need to be brought out and um that's definitely helped me uh, i do not want a career as a film composer that would be for me like going from the frying pan to the fire. Yeah. <laughs> I go from being someone who's one flute player in 300 for a single job to being one composer out of so many people who could all do an incredible job of writing for a film that's coming out. It's, it's equally as competitive and mm. I really am looking for a, a job that will combine my love of music for picture with behind the scenes, post-production, much more steady income. Yeah. And I think once I have the technical skills, which is what I'm building here on the podcast as well, Ooh. you guys are so patient with me. Thank you. I, we're me. patient with you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. We're, I'm definitely learning as I go. I knew a fair bit beforehand, but I've already learned so much while working with you guys. But yeah, that's how, that's how we got here. So would you Today. say that you're, ultimately, would you say that flute ensemble has led you to this moment? <laughs> Don't give Flute Ensemble any credit, please. I'm not, I'm just asking a question. <laughs> it's definitely been a part of my journey. Flute Ensemble. Yeah. Toot toot. <laughs> Sorry. Hey. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to give you an image of what Hattie just did to make that sound. She was pretending to play the flute, but making a face while she did it, like it was a terrible experience. <laughs> like yeah. she's crying, actually. Yeah. That's what um, they'll do, though. Hey. <laughs> uh, we have to make a funny face when we play, okay? <laughs> have you seen pictures of you playing the cello? Because <laughs> oh. oh. videos of me playing the bloody cello. <laughs> do we want to do our win of the well, week? Well, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, we should do our, our win of the week. Is it win of the week or is it little win or what do you want to call it? Well, I feel like the wins recently have been varying sizes. So it's whatever size win you want, really, as long as it's not too braggy. Um, <laughs> and it can be <laughs> it can be the week, it can be your life. So my win has been slightly inspired by Rebecca, actually. Oh. 
I had a, a weird time on Saturday night after we'd had that oh, yes. interview. Mm-hmm. I just felt very like emotionally like just not in a good place. And I was just like, before this gets any worse, I'm going to text a crisis line. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was you I was talking to. I've never, I've never used any kind of crisis service before. I've always been like, family. How has, but, has that been? Yeah, it's really hard to talk to your family in a crisis, actually. I, I was given the recommendation from a therapist of like, you should try out a crisis line when you're not massively... Diff, like having a hard time because then when you are having a really hard time it won't feel as daunting mm-hmm. so I was like well this is a really good example of that like I'm not having a brilliant time but also I don't feel at risk or anything mm-hmm. I just feel like it would be great to get some of my emotions out in that way and I think it was a massive win because it did feel really scary and I think you never hear about people that have actually texted a crisis line or used mm-hmm. one or called one so I just really wanted to like say that I did on Saturday that's great. And it felt like I woke up the next day, I felt really grateful that it was there and mm. that I kept myself safe, everything was, was yeah. good. Mm. Well done. Thank you. That's amazing. Yeah. Thanks also for the inspo. No, I mean thanks. I'll really friend. try not to not to text you. Oh, I'll be like, I'm texting someone. <laughs> Does everybody know why we're talking about Becca in this I situation? Don't think so so I volunteer for a crisis oh, text line for an organisation called Shout. And that's the text line that I texted. It's a good one. I'll tell you now. Text Shout to 85258. That's the one. And um, yeah, it's amazing. Like It was it's free training and you have to commit to between two and four hours a week, but you do it from home uh, on your compute. And yeah, would really recommend. Of course, it's quite intense, but it's incredibly rewarding. I only had to wait about 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes. Yeah, when it's really, really busy, people, because there's just, it's so oversubscribed at the moment, which shows obviously how much it's needed, but we've, uh, yeah, you often, on like a Friday night, will get people that have been waiting for two hours. So they really desperately need volunteers. Mm. I think that my win of the week would probably be saying out loud that I sobbed my heart out in the Royal Academy Music Bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it comes with so much weight and sadness. I really feel like I've got to a place where I can understand where that came from mm-hmm. and I feel a lot stronger and I think it would be very upsetting for anyone who knows me and cares about me to know that that happened because mm. I, I haven't really told anyone other than mm. like my partner and my therapist. Shout out <laughs> to all the therapists out yeah. there. <laughs> I think that's my, my win of the week. That's massive. Mm. Yeah. That's huge. Thanks guys. It's very, it feels very exposing when you say it out loud. Have the courage to like, yeah, admit to a really intense emotional experience. Especially in that disgusting laboratory. <laughs> I think. But thank you. Thank sure. you. Oh, I thought you were going to say thank you to the Royal Academy of Music for providing such great toilets. Yeah, um, Rebecca's win will come at another time. Thank no, you. I've, I found it. <laughs> I think mine, yeah, kind of inspired by what Katie's just said about saying things out loud. Like, I've been having some difficult stuff come up from my time at school with past friends and stuff, and just being really honest in conversation with Stu about how I'm feeling about it and 
um, yeah, there's quite a lot of things that I'll be like, I really don't like how I sound when I say this, but I think it's important for us to communicate how we're mm. feeling entirely and just being really honest with mm. that, which has been quite big. Yeah. yeah, and not always saying what you think they want to hear or what's the most, like, yeah, yeah, the exactly. least kind of provocative, is that a word? Yeah. Yeah, not just people-pleasing. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. That's amazing. Thanks. That's really hard. Thanks. Oh my gosh, these are big wins. <laughs> a big fat win. Yes. A big fat win. Well, wins. thank you, darling Katie, for your expertise, time, and for sharing your story with us. Cause it's... And your equipment. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I will shuffle back into being an editing behind the scenes person for the majority of our podcasts. But not until we've done our spooky season. Yes, we have a spooky Patreon episode coming up, um, which I will also be on. Aren't you guys lucky? Um, yes. It's going to be so spooky and terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, talk about the horrors of feedback forms. Yeah. Spooky, <laughs> scary feedback. And a reminder as always that you can find us on the interweb at TMDTA Podcast on all of the socials. Our website is www.thingsmusiciansdonttalkabout.com and our email address is thingsmusiciansdonttalkabout at gmail.com and you can also join our Patreon as you've heard there are many many treats on there for your ears and your minds. You've made out there are loads of tears, there aren't loads No, there's one tier, it's £3 a month. And you can also buy us a coffee on coffee.com but it's all in our link tree, you know where to find it. There are stickers as well. There are stickers but we're running out. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, you know where to find us because you found us here today. And if you wanted to send uh, anything our way about what you thought of the episode mm. or just wanted to share a story. Or you want to offer Katie a spot on a, on your next big blockbuster soundtrack. <laughs> you. you can send us an email or drop, or drop us a DM on socials. That's cute. Like, it would be so great to hear from you guys. We really yeah. do. We love it when we read your posts and we read um, all of your comments. Um, it means so much that we are reaching people and that we're making a difference. Like This is the reason why we're here. Mm-hmm. Amen. Oh, if you could leave a review and um, if you have time to leave a little rating. We're trying to trying to get our word out there even further. So it really, really, really helps us if you could just click them stars. Bye.